Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? On this week's show, what's the buzz? Introducing the world's first all-electric supertruck, the revolutionary GMC Hummer EV. Yes, you heard it right, an electric Hummer, ready to replace the monster gas guzzler that's the stuff of some driver's dreams, but is also a nightmare for those fighting climate change. That new electric vehicle, revealed just a few days ago, is one more sign of enthusiasm for the idea of plugging in, charging up, and driving off. There are also new deals for Canadian auto plants to start building EVs. The Unifor Chrysler deal is the second one in the past four weeks in this country, which means labor peace in Canada and a substantial investment in the electric car. But let's hit the brakes for just a second. Canada wants to get to 100% all-electric new vehicle sales by 2040. Right now, we have no policy pathway to get to those 100% targets. Okay, there's that. But Canada should still try to get as many emission-free cars on the road as it can, right? Zero-emission vehicles are a myth. They do not exist. Okay, on today's show, we will cruise through the challenges and the promise of going electric and just how Canada might get from A to B. By the way, that new Hummer, a mere $112,000 U.S. When it comes to building, designing, and trading in electric vehicles in Canada, Ottawa is all in. It believes electrifying the transportation sector is key to a low-carbon future. And one of the ways it wants to drive down greenhouse gas emissions is to see Canadians buying cars, SUVs, and pickup trucks that qualify as zero-emission vehicles. The federal government wants to see sales in that sector hit 10% by 2025, with an eye to hitting 100% of all sales by 2040. But analysts have questioned how we'll get there from here, with forecasts showing consumer uptake well short of that. Take Tara Staunton, for example. She's been eyeing an electric vehicle for a while, but she still hasn't pulled the switch. Hello, Tara. Hi. Can you tell me why you want to buy an electric vehicle? Well, it's it's part of the lifestyle that I've been trying to lead and, and move to over the past several years. The school that I work at and the community that I live in is a very, very remote rural community in uh, southern Ontario. And um, myself and a lot of my friends have been working really, really hard to sort of be much more ecologically minded in the last five to 10 years. And purchasing an electric vehicle is just part of that movement. So how much driving do you do every day? Uh, It's a 30 kilometer drive one way to get to school. So I drive about 60 kilometers a day back and forth to work. I also go and visit my parents and they live 30 kilometers away. So sometimes I drive 
30 kilometers to work, 30 kilometers home, 30 kilometers to my parents and 30 kilometers back again. So so sometimes it's like 120 kilometers a day. So you want one, but you haven't yet got one. Why not? There's a couple of different factors why. Um, one is because the technology is relatively new. Range hasn't really been something that I've been able to manage just because of the amount of driving that I do. So the, the further I have to drive, um, the less range I would have in a fully electric vehicle. And the other really big issue is, has been cost. It's just been too expensive for me as a single parent to be able to afford to buy an EV. But but the, the Ontario did have an incentive for electric vehicles. Is that right? I know. And I wish that I had taken advantage of that at the time, but I didn't think it was going to go away. So I, I waited too long. And it's gone. It's gone. Now there's federal incentives are still there, which is which is excellent. Um, but it would just been that little bit more would have been would have been the piece that would have made it easier for me to purchase. Right. Now you you live in Wyerton and it, it's a small place, two thousand people on the Bruce Peninsula, and as you mentioned, long drives to get to where you need to go. What problems does that create when it comes to buying an EV? I mean, you already talked about the range of the vehicles, but but what about just the fact that you you live in a smaller community? Yeah, there's not the same kind of access to charging stations that I would have maybe had if I was in a larger center. The other piece that some people don't really think about either is the weather. So it gets very cold here and range when it comes to an EV in the in the winter seems to be reduced pretty badly sometimes. And I don't have a garage at my house, so I would have to build a garage if I if I really wanted to maintain the range to keep the car warm. And so that's another piece that sort of falls into it as well. Um, so yeah, the infrastructure just isn't here as, as well as I would like like it to be in order to be able to make an EV super practical. And would you have a, a garage in Wyrton that would be able to do maintenance? Not at all, no. So that's the other piece. I'd have to drive the car, maybe take the car maybe as far away as London, Ontario or Kitchener, Ontario in order to have any service done on it. So so this might be a little cheeky, Tara, but, but it, it, <laughs> if this is the lifestyle you want to adopt and, and EVs yeah. are a part of it, given the, the mm -hmm. constraints that you face in Wharton, why not move somewhere where it actually is easier to get around and have the car and use less fossil fuel? I've thought about that. I love the community here. This is where I grew up. I've lived here my entire life. I love that I have a really, really close-knit group of friends and family who are sort of like-minded in the same way that I am. And so it's nice to have that group of people around me. Um, even, <clears throat> pardon me, in the last little while, um, we've been talking about the whole idea about going to um, move closer to my school so that I didn't have to drive quite as far uh, to get to school. But but we've really established ourselves here. And it's one of those things that to sacrifice you know, a really good community and a really good set of neighbors is really hard when you're when you're when you're trying to make those kinds of decisions. So it just wasn't one that I wanted to make. And what what else have you done in your life to, to minimize your carbon footprint? Uh, we compost here. I tend to try to shop locally as, as often as I can. I've had um, solar panels installed on the roof of my house so that we, we sell electricity back into the grid. I'm a Bullfrog Power member so that I so that I pay for some offsets. And, uh, and so based on the amount of CO2 emission that I generate sort of on an average every month, I'll pay a, I'll pay a fee and that money goes into supporting their work. So given everything that you're evidently doing, um, I'm wondering how difficult is it for you not to be able to get your keys into the ignition of an EV as well? 
Yeah, it's it's really hard. I I currently own a Kia, and many of my my fam my my friends that I work with, my colleagues that I work with, some of them own garages, and some of them own farms, and so for them. Um, purchasing an EV maybe isn't right on the top of their list. And so, so it's, 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 it's one of those balanced things that you have to try to find a way to contribute as much as you can. But when it comes to the point where you have to, I, I would have to sacrifice, you know, I need a new roof on my house. So do I sacrifice a new roof on my house so that I can buy an EV? Do I, what do I, what do I give up in order to be able to make that, make that change? And it's really challenging to try to make those kinds of financial decisions. Well, what do you think what then would encourage more Canadians to switch to EVs? I think if they were more readily available. So even now when I was looking at purchasing the the Nero this summer, I was going to have to wait for six weeks was the was the manufacture time, which is way lower than it has been in the past when I've done some investigations. But still, if this car that I'm driving right now breaks down and I don't have a way to get around, I'm not going to be able to just go out and purchase an EV because I have to wait six weeks for one to be built. Um, I think having accessibility in the communities like the one that I live in where there is a dealership where I can go to purchase an EV rather than having to travel as far as Kitchener or London in order to do that, it would also be a really, really helpful piece. And I think the price point really does need to be a little bit more comfortable for people to get into. They're getting better and better all the time. And so I know if I wait long enough, I'll be able to afford to purchase one. But right now they're just that little bit out of reach so that I I just can't afford to make that happen. And I think it's the same for a lot of Canadians as well. Tara, thank you very much. Thanks, Laura. Talk to you again soon. Tara Stanton lives in Wyerton, Ontario. Enthusiasm for electric vehicles is growing in Canada, but there's a pretty wide gap between what we're driving now and having a zero-emission fleet by 2040. For one thing, the International Energy Agency found the vehicles we drive in Canada have the worst fuel economy of anywhere in the world. Joanna Kiriasis is a senior policy advisor with Clean Energy Canada. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So how are we doing right now with emissions from the transportation sector? Transportation currently accounts for about a quarter of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. This is the second largest source next to oil and gas. Uh, And while other sectors of the economy are, are seeing a downward trend in greenhouse gas emissions, our transportation emissions are rising. Now, a big part of the problem here is the cars that you and I drive. As you said, the International Energy Agency found you know, Canadians drive the largest, most polluting vehicles in the world. And it's true. Today, new car sales are dominated by pickup trucks and SUVs. Do you have any idea why? So part of it is about changing consumer preference, uh, and it's and it's a positive feedback loop. So the more Canadians who buy SUVs, the more Canadians who want them. Nobody wants to be the small car uh, in a sea of, of pickup trucks and SUVs on the highway. Uh, but there's also another factor that's at play here. Automakers have an incentive to more aggressively market SUVs and pickup trucks because they make higher profits on these larger vehicles than they do on sedans and certainly than they do on, on electric vehicles, which are relatively new technology. Is it also the case that, that in many places in Canada, too, that, that the cost of gas just, just doesn't act as a barrier enough for people? So buying an SUV or a pickup truck isn't that much of a burden. 
Certainly, that's another factor. And uh, when we look at electric vehicle uptake in other countries, um, gas prices <laughs> factor in uh, to the decision. Uh, meanwhile, in North America, where gas prices are relatively low, uh, it, it's harder for Canadians to make that choice, even though these SUVs and pickup trucks, uh, you know, they do cost quite a bit to fuel up and they're not as I, as we said, they're not efficient. So they require more frequent trips to the gas station and more money each time. So you'd think that Canadians would want to embrace something like an electric SUV or an electric pickup truck because then they get their big car and they also get uh, a bigger bang for their buck, so to speak. Are electric vehicles even available in those categories? Great question. Right now, not really. Um, first of all, Canada has a, a major electric vehicle supply problem, uh, where a survey done earlier this year for Transport Canada found that the majority of dealerships across the country don't have a single EV in stock. Um, not, a, not of any model, you mean? Not Exactly. Not of any make or model. Um, but Automakers are uh, slowly starting to move into the, the larger vehicle segments and, uh, and electric versions of a number of Canada's top selling vehicles are coming uh, to market in the next year or two. So in, this includes electric versions of the Toyota RAV4, of the Ford F-150 pickup truck, of the Jeep Wrangler. Uh, right now, there's a bit of a question mark as to whether they're actually going to be available in Canada for sale um, because automakers tend to prioritize other regions that have more EV supportive policies in place, like China and the EU. Even if there was a, a market here that wanted it, they, they wouldn't be able to get the product here? I mean, demand is certainly part of the um, part of the equation. And so, yes, if Canadians are knocking down the door asking for these electric vehicles, then that that is going to play a role. Uh, but the policy and regulatory environment is also really important. The EU has uh, implemented the strongest vehicle emission standards in the world, and automakers have to sell electric vehicles there in order to meet those standards. China has similarly put in place very aggressive policies to push EVs. Uh, so those those markets are getting top priority and Canadians are uh, getting the shorter end of the electric vehicle stick here. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you next. I mean, if the goal is to get everyone in zero emission vehicles, where is Canada at in terms of the, the policies that are needed? Right now, we have no policy pathway to get to those 100% targets. Um, we do have some incentives. So the federal government offers rebates of up to $5,000 um, to help Canadians purchase a new electric vehicle. There's also been a lot of focus on installing public charging stations across the country. Those are great first steps. Uh, but in addition to these carrots, we also need some sticks. Uh, and so that means we need to um, we need to pursue more ambitious vehicle emission standards uh, that make cars more fuel efficient every year and uh, more aggressively push electric or push automakers towards electric vehicles. And then another policy that we've been um, advocating for is called a zero emission vehicle standard. Now that is a requirement that automakers ensure a minimum percentage of all of their vehicle sales each year are electric. 
BC and Quebec already have this policy in place. And those two provinces are responsible for 80% of electric vehicle sales in Canada. They're also home to the majority of EVs available for sale. Oh, he's gonna, we want to see that at, at the national level. Right, because you mentioned the rebates uh, at the start of your answer, um, and you mentioned the federal rebate, but here in BC, there's also a provincial rebate, so you get a rebate of up to $8,000 here in British Columbia. But I, I wonder what the argument is for spending public money to help someone buy a private vehicle when, when there are so many out there who couldn't even think about buying an EV at any cost. I agree. And, you know, purchase incentives certainly aren't a silver bullet and they are a higher cost way of getting to that 100% electric vehicle goal. Um, as you as you pointed out, they also right now, as they're currently designed, don't do a great job of, of reaching lower and middle income Canadians. Um, often they're criticized for helping uh, those families buy an electric vehicle who would have anyways. Right. So we, we'd also like to see those purchase incentives be modified so they can um, help folks buy a used electric vehicle, for instance, or um, we want to see additional rebate money available to uh, the Canadians who need it most. I guess the other thing that that uh, that figures into this, though, is everyone's it, it's widely accepted projections that the cost of these vehicles are going to come down as the years go on. Yes. So since 2010, just 10 years ago, we've seen the cost of electric vehicle batteries drop by 80%. That is the bulk of what makes an electric vehicle expensive is the battery. And so uh, we're expecting to see EV prices um, come down uh, at the same time. And, and in fact, they're supposed to uh, be competitively priced with similar gas powered models by the mid to late 2020s. Now, I have to ask you, you've faced, <laughs> you've faced a bit of a dilemma in your own life when it comes to choosing a vehicle. Can you tell me about that? So my husband and I purchased our first car about two years ago, when, uh, right before we had our daughter. And we had a bit of a standoff <laughs> in, inside our household where I really wanted an electric vehicle. My husband was really pushing for uh, a larger vehicle that could fit our camping gear, you know, our bikes and our uh, all of the stuff that comes along when you, when you have a baby. <clears throat> At the time, there weren't very many options that uh, could combine both of those features, you know, both it being a larger vehicle and it being electric. So we ended up choosing a, a used Subaru Outback. Now, <gasps> now there are um, a lot more electric vehicle makes and models uh, coming to market, including some, you know, larger SUVs and, and pickup trucks and cars that can accommodate the more rugged, adventurous uh, folks out there. And uh, if you were to ask my husband now, will our next car be electric? He would say, you bet it will. <laughs> now, seriously, Joanna, two, 2040 is still two decades away, but, but switching away from gas-powered vehicles still seems like such a big job when the technology and the infrastructure is so embedded in how things operate now. And I'm wondering, do you see us getting to 100% zero emission vehicles by then? 
I think we're going to just see a rapid change in the world in the next few years um, for a number of reasons. One, this COVID <laughs> pandemic has really changed the game. Uh, we see countries around the world putting their stimulus and recovery spending towards accelerating the transition to electric vehicles. Uh, so countries like Germany and France are uh, doubling their purchase incentives. Uh, China's pouring hundreds of millions into electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And they're seeing this as a way to create jobs and, and boost the economy. Um, then we're seeing some of our, our neighboring countries and states like California um, sign up for a, a, a ban on all internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035. New Jersey just announced that it was thinking about uh, making the same move. Um, so, you know, with all of these changes happening. And just because we know we need to do this, we need to reduce our carbon pollution in order to uh, ward off the worst of climate change, uh, then, then yeah, I think if we can convince our, our government to put the policy package that we need in place, uh, we can get more Canadians in cleaner cars and, and Canadians just out of their cars altogether. Well, that was um, the next you know. question, right? Because if they do make the switch to electric vehicles, isn't there a danger that, that they're further entren entrenching this idea of a personal vehicle when it really would be better for more of us to not use cars? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the number one best thing that we can do for the climate is get out of our cars, get onto our bikes, uh, live close to where we work and play, um, ride public transit where possible. Um, but of course, that's not a reality for all Canadians, especially when house prices in inner cities are uh, through the roof. And so for those who do need to drive for, um, for their work or for their family reasons, uh, going electric is is, is the best thing that we can do. Joanna Curiosis, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Joanna Curiosis is a senior policy advisor with Clean Energy Canada. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, last week on the program, we asked you to let us know what you thought about electric vehicles, and a few of you have already taken the plunge. But a lot of people wrote in about what was holding them back from actually buying one. Hi, I'm Debbie Unger from Plumas, Manitoba. I currently drive a Toyota RAV4 SUV, but I've been considering getting an electric vehicle for some time now. Two years ago, and even last year at this time, we had huge snowstorms. We end up with you know, meter-high drifts on our country roads. And it'll take three, four days, up to a week sometimes, before the plow comes down the road. And even with my SUV, it's a challenge to get down those roads. All the electric vehicles so far are small sedans, and they have no ground clearance. There's no place in Nipua where I work to charge an electric vehicle and there's no one to actually help you maintain it either. There's no one here with a shop that can fix something like that. So for us to get repairs, we'd be driving at least an hour and a half 
one direction to find a repair shop. It is very frustrating and, um, you know, and it's equally frustrating to hear when, you know, provincial and federal governments say they support this industry, but, you know, whenever you turn around there, there really doesn't seem to be any evidence of it in the, you know, the communities that we live in. Hi, my name is Ming Quan Nguyen and I've been looking for an EV since 2017 when the Model 3 was announced. I personally want to wait until Tesla adopts an industry standard. All we need to do is just look at Europe. They all use the same charging standard. So that's, that will be my utopia right now. I love the feel of the road. I love, you know, the act of driving. So that's something I do enjoy. And it's a personal freedom that not many can afford. And I'm lucky enough to afford the ability to drive. So it's very selfish for me to say that I like driving, but it's not something I can give up easily. Uh, what at stake is it has to do with the security of um, fuel. So if we switch over to electric cars, we will not be uh, so dependent on oil. And also, uh, especially in towns, uh, everyone knows since COVID initially started, we can feel like our air has got cleaner, right? And it's something I want to continue. Min Kwan Nguyen lives in Burnaby, B.C., and before him you heard Debbie Unger from Plumas, Manitoba. While switching to electric vehicles or EVs can help drive down greenhouse gas emissions, take a minute to think about the language policymakers use to describe them. Canada and others call them zero-emission vehicles because they have the potential to produce no tailpipe emissions. But that phrase, zero emissions, doesn't sit well with everyone. Zero-emission vehicles are a myth. They do not exist. Um, and I'm not saying that against uh, electric vehicles. I'm just saying it's a fact. We, we, we cannot produce and run vehicles with an, a zero carbon footprint. Uh, we require energy uh, to produce the batteries, to manufacture the vehicles. And that's the same for conventional ones. But electric vehicles require even more energy. And we require energy to feed them. That's Alex Milovanov. He published a paper in the journal Nature Climate Change this fall, and it warns that EVs aren't a silver bullet for meeting emission targets. Alex modeled the impacts of what a large-scale shift to EVs could mean, not only for emissions, but also for power grids and other infrastructure. And that's if you can get more drivers into those cars. I believe it's possible to reach this 100% target by 2040. But I think there's many barriers to overcome. First of all, the adoption barrier. We need to make sure that the electric vehicles are cheaper than they are now because now they are way more expensive. So we cannot ask everybody to get them. So huge subsidies or tax exemptions or other types of investments from the government, but also in infrastructure barriers. We need to invest largely in private chargers. You need to have a private charger at home, at work, and in between. And so it's difficult to quantify. Nobody knows exactly. But this will require huge investments, and that will not happen in the next few years. It will happen definitely in the next decade or more. Now, Alex's study used American data, but he says a lot of the main takeaways are the same. We know that the deployment of electric vehicles will have huge strains on infrastructure. It will require huge changes in technologies, in behaviors, and in uh, governmental support. And that's the same for Canada and the U.S. Even though that Canada is more um, inclined right now to support electric vehicles, there's still a lot of work to do. For just one glimpse of that work, picture this. It's the end of the workday, and everyone drives their electric cars home and plugs them in. 
The peak evening demand for electricity gets even bigger. Alex says it compounds a challenge we already have. The more we electrify, the higher the electricity demand will be, and so the more rapid the decarbonization of the electricity will need to happen. So the more investment we will need to have in the electricity infrastructure, and the more strains we will have, the more transmission lines we need to install. I think there is. A huge upstream chain of technological events that most of people don't see that are possible, but that increase the challenges of electrification. Some electricity comes from hydro, but electricity is also generated other ways. So, so what's the answer there? Where, where is the electricity that is going to power all this coming from? Definitely, if we talk about British Columbia, Quebec,、uh, we're talking about very likely hydro-powered electric vehicles. But if we talk about Alberta, Alberta has 90% fossil fuels in their electricity mixes. I think it will change in the next future. Hopefully, Alberta will be able to decarbonize, but that's not an easy task. Well, that was another question. The technology behind electric vehicles is changing and improving all the time. So, is it possible there will be some sort of breakthrough that makes this all that much more feasible? They will. Um, and I think it's it's a, it's also a matter of mass production. So there are many components. So the more we produce the batteries, the cheaper they get,、um, and so the more we can、um, develop cheaper vehicles.、Um, but the the issue is the more we develop certain types of batteries, the less likely we will we will be able to move to other types of technologies. So is the better car really the answer here, or do we do we just need to get out of our cars? It's a it's a mix of both. Um, it's a mix of all the potential solutions we can we can do.、Um, what we've shown in our study is that the pace of electrification in the U.S. is probably not、uh, feasible to reach the climate ambition. But there is an easy solution,、uh, which is that electrifying massively, but also trying to implement measures to control vehicle usage and vehicle ownership, because. No matter the type of technology, private passenger vehicles are more energy intense than buses or subways, or even more biking or cycling, biking, cycling, or walking. And so there is a trade-off to find. It's not about asking everybody to get out of their cars, but it's about finding a trade-off by between electrification and development of other technologies that we know work. Will that work, though? I mean, you've written about vehicles being synonymous with independence and opportunities. Yes, exactly.、Uh, but that's not the only thing. I think we grow up with this idea that the only way to move is by using private passenger vehicles. So I think there is a cultural shift, which once again does not require every single one of us to get rid of their cars. In the simulations we made, we realized that if we are able to decrease by a little bit than less than one percent per year the travel demand per capita in the U.S. in terms of Private passenger vehicles, then we will be able to reach our climate ambition、uh, by the current、uh, electrification pace. So that's not a huge change in behaviors. It's about it's it's making sure that urban centers are not only vehicle centered, that they have investments and supports in public transit, biking,、um, and walking infrastructures. Once again, it's it's a matter of making sure that people that need the private vehicles can use them, but people that don't need them don't use them. Alex, I wanted to ask you: People who who might have been considering buying an electric vehicle, who think that this is the way to help、um, contribute to the fight against climate change, climate change, they might be hearing about all of these issues、um, and be tempted to throw their hands up in the air and say, "Well, what's the point? I'm going to this. This costs something to the environment." So, 
Um, I'm wondering, even with the the issues that, that have been raised, do you still believe electric vehicles really are part of the solution? They are part of the solutions. They are necessary. So if you wonder if I should invest in electric vehicles, I will tell you, yes, you should probably invest in electric vehicles. But whatever decision you make, maybe there are some trips that you can make by biking, uh, walking, or even taking the bus. We need a mix of, of solutions. And I think that's one of the, the great conclusion of this uh, pandemic is the resilience of our society will depend on on a mix of solutions we will be able to use. And that's, that's basically in line with my, my uh, conclusion of my work is the same uh, thing is we need private pa passenger vehicles and, and the, the way we're going to use them, the way we're going to own them will change in the next decade with the advent of ride hailing with autonomous vehicles. I think there's huge uncertainties of what will be our relationship with vehicles, uh, but we also need other solutions. And that's this only this mix will make us resilient and will make us reach our climate ambition. And just for the record, how do you get around? Uh, that's a great question. So <laughs> I live in the city of Toronto. I bike a lot, um, but I can, when I cannot bike or when it's uh, rainy, I take the bus. Um, so I don't own a car. Uh, one day I will probably move out of Toronto and I will probably um, be uh, faced with the dilemma to buy a vehicle. And in that case, I will buy an electric vehicle. Well, I'm telling you, Alex, if you ever move out to Vancouver, you better get used to cycling in the rain. It's de rigueur out here. <laughs> oh, I'm ready for it. Okay, Alex, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Laura. Alex Milovanov is a researcher at the University of Toronto. Well, Alex isn't the only one who might face the dilemma of buying a vehicle in the future. And so today on the program, we want to give the last word to someone facing his future and thinking about what he can do to change it. Hi, my name is Mitch Gregory. I'm a mechanical engineering student at Dalhousie University, and I'm an aspiring electric vehicle owner. The world is really my oyster at the moment. Uh, there's so many different opportunities, uh, and renewable energy and um, zero emissions technology is really what I want to be in. Uh, and um, I want to be accelerating that transition to zero emissions, whether it's through uh, vehicles or, or batteries uh, for grid storage or for working on renewable energy projects. Um, that's really what I want to do. Once I graduate and, and get a steady job and, and I can uh, you know, make an investment into a vehicle that will last me a long time, especially with electric vehicles and the technology, how reliable they are, uh, I think that would be a purchase that I can spend a little bit more on uh, because I know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay off in the long run based on the, the savings. It, it's really important. I, I see it as a, a step that we have to take in order to, to reduce our emissions. But really kind of pushed me past the, the point where I was like, I need to kind of commit to this is I was driving on um, the McKay Bridge in Halifax and it's a you know straight line and a lot of different cars in front of you and they're all gas cars. And I'm breathing in, I'm like, you know, feeling congested just from breathing in the gas. And that just made me realize how much of an impact it does have. So yeah, I think it, it's kind of sub subconscious to me. It's just something that I have to deal with, but also realize that there's uh, something I can do about it. Mitch Gregory is a third-year mechanical engineering student at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Before we wrap, we want to hear from you about nuclear power. Small modular reactors are being built by governments big and small as a path to hit net zero emissions. What do you think? Would you welcome nuclear power if it means getting off fossil fuels? Email us, earth at cbc.ca. And if you haven't given us a review yet, please do and tell a friend to subscribe. 
Thanks this week to the What on Earth team. Associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wilson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.